Good evening, First Baptist family, and welcome to another edition of our Tough Questions. Tonight, we're going to look at a really sensitive one. We're in a series right now. We've gotten uh, to the part of our series where we're in some really emotionally charged issues, and no more so than tonight, uh, we're looking at the subject, what does the Bible say about abortion? And this is commonly seen as a very politically partisan issue, but I'm going to start by saying a couple of things that might surprise you. Number one, I think if we're obedient to Scripture, completely obedient to Scripture on this issue, we're going to be irritating to both sides of the political spectrum, probably equally irritating to both sides. And the second thing that you might surprise you is, I don't think that our ultimate goal in this, if we're being absolutely biblical, is going to be anything that we can accomplish through political means. I think politics has something to do with it. I think legislation is important and, and, and that plays a part, but the ultimate goal in, in this can't be accomplished by Congress, by Supreme Court, by a president. So we'll get into that in a little while, but let me just start by saying the obvious truth. The word abortion is not found in the Bible. Uh, in the same way the word suicide last week wasn't found in the Bible. But just like last week, there are principles in Scripture that we can use to know uh, how to think in this way and, and what, what God thinks about this. Specifically, the principle is that human life is sacred. It's known as the, the sanctity of human life, or every life matters to God. And we see that from the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1 tells us, uh, God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them male and female. He created them. The Bible doesn't say that about anything else in all the universe. Only human beings are created in God's own image. And so there's something special about human life in the eyes of God. Just eight chapters later in Genesis 9-6, he says, Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Human life is sacred before God, and he takes it seriously when human life is destroyed. And, and all through the Old Testament, Old Testament is often seen as very harsh and very legalistic, and, and the truth is, it's the Word of God just like the New. Uh, over and over again, you see in the law, God saying, it matters to me how you treat those who are weak, those who can't take care of themselves. Uh, God judges nations. He would judge the nation of Israel based on how they treated the widow, the orphan, uh, the, the poor, the immigrant the marginalized of various kinds, and God's judgment would fall on them if they weren't kind to them. In fact, uh, a lot of us are familiar with the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, these two great cities of the ancient world that God destroyed with literal fire and brimstone. That's where that cliche came from. And, and a lot of people think that that had to do with the perverse sexuality of those two cities. We're going to talk about the subject of sexuality on another, day, on another tough question, but that's not actually what it says in Scripture. Ezekiel 16.49 says the reason that God destroyed those two cities was because they didn't take care of the poor. Let me, let me show you where I find that. Ezekiel 16.49, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Okay, so you may say, how do I get from there to the subject of abortion? God cares about every human life. Every human life matters to Him. All human life is sacred before God. Therefore, it is a, a, a profound sin against Him to disregard and even more so to take a human life. And the question when it comes to abortion is, is the life of the fetus in the womb a human life in the eyes of God? And according to Scripture, it very clearly is. 
Uh, Psalm 139, verse 13, David says, You knit me together in my mother's womb. So God is going to exquisite care for every single person He creates within the womb of a human. You knew me when I was there. Jeremiah 1.5, this is God's call. He's, he's speaking these words to Jeremiah. He says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. In Luke 1, 39-45, we read the story of Mary, who's just found out that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. And she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth is about six months along with her baby, who's going to be John the Baptist. We'll know him by that name. And Mary walks through the door of Elizabeth's home there in the hill country of Judea. And as soon as she walks through the door and says, Hello, Elizabeth, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist, leaps for joy. And, of course, I as a man have no idea what that feels like. Some of you uh, who are watching right now are, are women who've had children. You may know what that feels like. But the point of the story is that John, while he was in his mother's womb, understood that the baby in Mary's womb, who was not nearly as far along, who, was, who, was just, who had just begun to form, that he was a person, that he was the Messiah, that he was someone who mattered. And there was, there was recognition on the part of one unborn child for another. And that's a very profound story. Many, many scriptures talk about God's curse on anybody who sheds innocent blood. And God takes that very seriously, and it brings His judgment when we do that or when we allow it to be done. I'll just give you a few references you can look up for yourself. Exodus 23, verse 7, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, and 2 Kings 24, 3 through 4. Those are just three examples. Beyond Scripture, you think about this idea. Uh, you think about the idea of what a human life really is. We're blessed because we live in an age with advanced technology, ultrasounds, and other technologies that enable us to know more about the life of the child in the womb than we ever have before, to take 3D pictures, high-definition pictures of the child in the womb. And so we know there's a heartbeat there at a very early stage. There's brain activity that can be registered on an EKG. There's a unique DNA in every unborn child. And you might say, okay, I get that, but when, at what point in fetal development, does that child have a soul? And I'll be honest with you, there's nowhere in the Bible that tells us when exactly that happens. When does it go from a part of the mother's body to a unique, distinct, uh, separate human life? We don't know. And certainly science has no way of measuring the soul, so science can't tell us the answer to that question. So here's how I, uh, how I resolve that question. Here's, here's the math that I do in my mind, or the logic that I use in my mind. See, if, if, God, if God sees the human child, or the, the unborn child in the womb, as a human life, that's good enough for me. And we, as a human society, have decided, well, we can arbitrarily decide that it's not a person until this happens. And it depends on who you talk to. Well, it's when they can survive outside the womb, or it's at this point or that point. But I say, isn't it wiser for us to defer to God? Isn't it wiser for us to say only God gets to decide which unborn life gets to survive outside the womb? Isn't it wiser for us to say, I'm going to lean on the side of saying, I don't want to take a chance on taking what is absolutely a human life. I'm going to leave that decision up to God. And others would come back with, yeah, but Jeff, what about, what about crisis pregnancies? What about 
uh, rape? What about incest? What about uh, situations where the mother's life is in danger? And, and first of all, let me just say those are very complex issues. If my wife or, or my daughter were in that situation, I can't tell you that it would just be an easy thing for me to say, oh yeah, go ahead and have that child. Those are complex issues. I don't want to pretend they're not. But when you look at the statistics, when you look at uh, the Guttmacher Institute did a study of several years ago and asked women, what is the primary reason you sought an abortion? Less than 5% said it was either because of rape, incest, or there was a problem with my health. The primary reason in less than 5% of cases uh, falls into one of those categories. And so I'd be overjoyed if we could just get those 95% out of the way and say, okay, let's let those children live. And, and then we'll work on those 5% where things are more complex. Uh, listen, I'm saying all of those children are human lives. I'm not saying that we should take those lives either. I'm saying if you wanna focus on that, okay, let's talk about it, let's find solutions. But even there, I think, we need to find a way to let people live who God has placed in the womb. So, speaking of the mother, let's, let's not forget this is, this is not an issue just about unborn children. Uh, studies show that, that women who go through abortion have high rates of depression, anxiety, substance abuse. The suicide rate is three times higher than the public at large. And, and so there's, a, there's definitely an issue there too. So what are we gonna do? The, the tide, fortunately, the tide is turning on this issue in society. The abortion rate has been declining for years now. Um, ultrasound technology, as I said before, has changed a lot of people's minds. The first time you see a baby inside of you, you recognize that as an actual human life. And, and so I think over time, more and more, the, the tide of, of cultural opinion is going to change on this issue and technology is going to be at the forefront of that. And some people say, some people say that in generations to come, uh, our, our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will look back on us the way we look back on our great-great-grandparents who thought it was perfectly okay to enslave another human being. They'll look at us and they'll say, how could you do this? How could you allow this? How could you celebrate this and consider it a fundamental human right? And, and I hope that's true. I hope that change does happen. And, and, and for the first time in my life, I can foresee it even happening in my own generation. But is that really the goal? Is it really the goal that we overturn Roe versus Wade, that we make abortion illegal? I want it to happen, absolutely, but is that the ultimate goal? And I say to you, no. No, it's not. And here's why. That wouldn't stop abortion. It wouldn't stop it at all. It would probably decrease the numbers drastically, but there would still be women who would seek abortions. They would only be seeking illegal ones, more dangerous ones now. It wouldn't stop abortion. It wouldn't stop, uh, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't mean a decline in unwanted children. It would mean there would be more unwanted children in the world, thousands more. All the same root causes that lead women to seek abortions today would still be there, poverty, broken families, irresponsible men, a society that prioritizes the wrong thing. There's, there's any number of reasons why this is happening. And those, those would still be there. You can't legislate that away. Uh, no matter how many uh, Congress people you get on your side, no matter how many Supreme Court justices you get who are anti-abortion, you can't change any of those things. You can change the law, but it's not gonna change the root problem. So what do we do? What, what should we do if we want to be strictly biblical? 
Well, let me mention several things. Number one, we need to care about those root causes. We need to care, we need to care more about those root causes than we do the political results. So again, like, like I said at the beginning, if we're strictly biblical, we should be irritating, equally irritating the people on the political left and the political right. And let me explain what I mean by that. So right now, what the political left says on this issue is, well, pro-lifers are, they're really pro-birth, not pro-life. You've probably heard that argument before. Um, and I understand why they say that. There was a political cartoon that I saw last year. And political cartoons can sometimes make points that somebody getting up and giving a speech or, or an ad on the radio or TV can't really adequately make. This one I thought was powerful. It, it showed a, a woman who was obviously pregnant and there are these, there's this group of people standing in front of her with angry faces and they're all yelling at her, how dare you think of aborting your child? And then in the next panel, you see the same woman, but now she's no longer pregnant, she's holding the baby. And the same group of people is standing there angrily shouting at her, but this time they're saying, how dare you expect us to provide your child with food and education and clothing and, and, and well-being. And the point was, if, if we don't care what happens to that child and his mother after the child is born, then maybe the political left is right. Maybe we are pro-birth, but not really pro-life. If we don't care about what happens to that family's food, education, and health care, more importantly, we're not, we're not being obedient to the scriptures because God cares about those people and we're commanded to care about them too. But then the political right comes back and says, wait a second, what, you, what you're talking about sounds like socialism. It sounds like redistribution of income. It sounds like uh, things that hurt working people, that dis disincentivizes hard work and savings and all the things that make our country great. And, and it actually doesn't help poor people. It just enslaves them, gets them addicted to government assistance. And I'm not, I, I understand the logic of that argument too. But please understand, the Bible is not a political document. The Bible is not written from the perspective of the American conservative movement or the American liberal movement. The Bible is the Word of God. And so God in the Scriptures doesn't say whether it's the government's job to take care of families or whether it's individuals' jobs. All it says is that we as God's people should care, that we should advocate for them, that we should take care of them, that we should, we should not rest while we know they're hungry, while we know they're not getting a proper education, while we know they don't have adequate health care and housing. We should care about those things, and we're going to be judged if we don't. You see, I believe that if the church is doing its job and living biblically, then a cartoon like that would never be able to be published. Because even people who, who profoundly disagree with us would, would have to say, yeah, I don't agree with those people, but they care more about the brokenhearted and the marginal than anybody else I know. They're the ones who are taking care of those kinds of people. That's our job. That's our calling. So number one, if we want to be truly scriptural and truly pro-life, we have to care about the root causes of abortion, not just the legality of it. Number two, we have to love women who have had abortions. We talked about earlier the, the emotional uh, impact that, that happens, is, that often happens to women who go through this. Here's something I read uh, a couple of years ago that just blew me away. Guttmacher Institute says that by the time women are 45, one in four women by the age of 45 has had an abortion. One in four. That means even if you don't know it, you know women who've gone through this. 
You know women who are struggling with this. Women who are watching me right now ha have experienced this. And, and my guess is most of them haven't told people in their church. Christian women who've had abortions have not told their pastor, have not told their life group leader, have not told uh, their, their Christian friends because they're afraid they'll be judged. They're afraid they'll be rejected. You see, when you've been through something like this, what you need is grace. You need to know that you're forgiven. You need to know that God hasn't changed His mind about you one bit. You need to know that your church family loves you just as you are. And so let me just say, if, if you, uh, as you're watching me now, if you say, yeah, I'm in that position, but I would never feel comfortable talking to someone in my church, I'm not asking you to talk to me about it. I'm not asking you to talk to any man in our church about it, but if you'll let me know that you've been through this, I know women who have experienced this, who would be glad to talk with you and share with you and listen to you and pray with you. Just reach out to me through email, jeffberger at fbcconroe.org, and I will, I will link you up with a woman who can, who can just uh, share, share thoughts with you and, and, and be a blessing to you. Number three, be consistent. Be consistent. And, and what I mean by that is we have to love all life. See, one of the things that's true of Christians, let me see if I can get my light to come back on. Yay, there we go. It worked. And it went off. Technical issues. All right. So one of the things about us as evangelical Christians is we are eager to support the troops, and I'm glad we are. My dad uh, did a tour of duty in Vietnam um, when he came back from that year in Vietnam. He had another year to serve in the military. They stationed him in San Francisco at the Presidio. That, that base doesn't exist anymore. That's actually where I was born. So for a year, my mom and dad lived in Northern California. And on the base, they told him, when you guys go off base, don't wear your uniforms. And if you know anything about 1970 and what the world was like in 1970, if you know anything about what the Bay Area of California was like in 1970, you'll understand why it wasn't the friendliest place to be a member of the military. Even though you'd been overseas and served your country and done so courageously, you weren't treated uh, with respect. And so for that reason, I'm glad that we're in a time now where there are people, especially Christians, who, who support our troops. I say all that, though, to say this. My dad, uh, a couple of years ago, was leaving church. Out in the church parking lot, he saw a bumper sticker on the back of someone's car. And the bumper sticker, you've probably seen this one too, it said, God bless our troops, especially our snipers. And my dad told me about that. And he said, and listen, this is my dad, a, a war veteran, an actual, actual war veteran. He said, I don't know whose car that was on, but he said, whoever it was, I guarantee you, they've never been to war. Because you've, if you've ever been to war before, you would never joke about it like that. You would never glorify it. You would never act like it's exciting or funny or, or something to rejoice in. Because war is terrible. The, the death and the devastation and the, the loss of human life, uh, is it sometimes necessary? I believe sometimes it is. I mean, God actually commanded uh, his, his people to fight wars at times. But it's still a terrible thing. Every human life is important. What I'm saying is we have to be consistent. If we say we love the life in the womb, if we say we're pro-life, well then let's love all life. Then let's never find ourselves being people who dismiss folks, even, our, even people who live in countries that are technically our enemies. We should never rejoice at the loss of human life. Be consistent. 
Here's another one, support adoption and foster care. But if there's one thing Christians can do to help in this issue, it's take care of the children that are unwanted. Take care of the children who need good homes. And I've known so many Christian families who've done this, and they're heroes to me. I'm so glad that uh, Nathan and Catherine Brown on our staff have adopted little Essie, and she's just, she's just such a source of joy to all of us in our church. And, and what I'm saying to you is, not all of us feel called to adopt or to foster, but we should consider that, we should pray about that, and if we don't feel called to that, we should strongly support those who are doing that. Strongly support them, be there for them, give them gifts, give them the support they need. Uh, get, offer, um, offer them babysitting or, or whatever you think they might need emotionally to know they're supported. Um, a next one, love the rejected and forgotten people all around you. If you're truly pro-life, if you're truly obedient to God's command that every life matters, then you care about everybody you meet and you show them that. And so what I'm asking you to do is pray for eyes to see the people who don't feel cared for. And maybe that's a kid in your class at school who's awkward, who's bullied. Maybe it's a family in your neighborhood who has moved here from another country and they feel all alone. Maybe it's the elderly person um, on your street who never gets any visitors. Maybe it's somebody in your own family who's in a retirement home or a nursing home and you know you should be visiting them, but you're not. Maybe it's uh, the person, the disabled person you see on the street and you're tempted to just look away, but instead you engage them like you should. There's all kinds of people around us who need to know they're cared for. You know, we, we talk all the time about this vision of transforming relationships, 10,000 transforming relationships over the next 10 years, those, those relationships are going to be need-based. We need to pray and say, Lord, every day I meet people who have needs. Every day I meet people who are hurting, who don't feel like their life amounts to much. Help me to be the person, the conduit of your grace. And if that leads to a relationship with that person that brings them into the love of God, then, then glory to Him. But we need to be willing. We need to be ready. And then finally, if we're truly obedient to the Scriptures, the most important thing is that we love the lost, that we care more about, uh, that we care more about people who don't know Jesus than we care about ourselves. See, one of my biggest problems with the whole pro-life movement, even though I'm a part of it, one of my biggest problems with it is the same problem I have with just about all political movements, and that's self-righteousness. We all want to occupy the moral high ground and act like, okay, because I believe this, then I'm better than the people who believe the other way. And, and that doesn't get us anywhere. Not only does that not win political battles, but more importantly, that drives people away from our Savior. So uh, several years ago, kind of a funny story, several years ago, I was working out at a gym and I was listening on my little headphones to a podcast that I would listen to from time to time. And this was kind of an interesting podcast. It's on public radio, and it's just people telling stories about things that happened to them. And I, I would listen to this podcast. It was interesting, but sometimes it was frustrating because suffice to say, most of the people telling the stories had a very different worldview than me. And so often in those stories, people like me i.e. conservative, evangelical, biblical Christians, were seen as the bad guys. Um, and I got a little tired of that. 
So I'm, I'm listening to this one story, and it's a woman talking about how she and her husband couldn't have children of their own, and so they were looking to adopt, and it was so hard to find a way to adopt a child domestically, and, and so she found out about this organization that enables you to adopt children from Africa. She thought, well, that's perfect. And, and so they were getting ready to go, and they had several friends come to them and say, listen, you don't want to do this. You don't want to adopt a baby from Africa, not because their friends were racist, but because their reasoning was, listen, the kinds of people that usually go over to Africa and other countries and adopt children tend to be evangelical Christians, and uh, you don't want to be with those people. It's going to be it's going to be uncomfortable for you. So here I'm, I'm lifting weights and I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, okay, great. It's, here we go again. Another one of these kinds of stories. But I kept listening. So in the story, the woman and her husband decide to go through with this adoption. They get on the plane and the, here's how she described it. She said she got on the plane and her heart sank because she looked up and down the aisles and saw that everybody on that plane looked like perfect, squeaky clean, suburban, evangelical Christians, like they walked right out of a Hallmark movie. And she and her husband were ex-military. Uh, she had a butch haircut. They, they both had big sleeves of tattoos and multiple piercings, and they both tended to use pretty R-rated language. And she thought, well, this is going to be the longest week of my life. They're going to judge me. They're going to make me feel rejected and isolated. But you know, they were there to adopt a child. So they sat down, they made the long flight. As the week went on, they each met their child and got to know their, the, the children they were adopting. She and her husband were adopting an adorable little four-month-old boy. So they spent several days with him in the orphanage along with all the other families and their adopted children. And she noticed that everyone was kind to her. Nobody made her feel bad. But at the same time, while she started to relax a little, she, wasn't, she was still going to be guarded. She wasn't going to trust any of these people. Well, on the last day, as they, as they head out to the airport and they're getting ready to get on the plane, suddenly there's a terrible mistake. She notices on the paperwork at the, at the orphanage, they had written down that the child they were adopting was four years old, not four months old. And so at the airport, the, the authorities won't let them take the child on the plane. They look at him and they say, that child's not four years old. You can't take this child. And so they're terrified. What are we to do? I mean, we came all this way. We've gotten to know this baby. We, we love him. He's ours. But they won't let us take him out of the country. And so they, they realize we can't get on the plane. If we get on the plane, we have to leave our child behind. And so they don't know what to do. If they stay behind, where are they going to stay? This is not their country. What are they going to do? They're, they're both in tears. And suddenly they look up and realize that all the other families are standing there with them. They're in the airport. And they say, well, why haven't you gotten on the plane yet? And the families all say, well, we're not getting on the plane until you get on the plane. If, if you can't leave, we're not leaving. And they just broke into tears. Now, I have to tell you, I'm, again, in a gym when I'm listening to this. And, you know, it's a place with bulging muscles and sweat and testosterone and lots of manly odors. And, and all of a sudden, I've got tears rolling down my face. You know, it really stinks to hit middle age. All of a sudden I get emotional and I'm, nobody says anything to me. I'm embarrassed, but nobody's saying anything to me probably because guys are thinking, I don't want to talk to the guy who's doing bicep curls and crying at the same time. But I, I had this joy in my heart as I heard this story of all of these Christian families stepping up and being the church. And the way the story ends is, they got the details worked out, they got on the flight, and, and all headed home to America. And she said, the story ended this way, she said, I, 
I went to Africa to give a family to a little boy who didn't have one. And I came home with a new family of my own. Now that doesn't mean that that woman and her husband became Christians, but I guarantee that they are much more open to the gospel now than they were before that. Because what they saw in those people was the opposite of self-righteousness. What they saw in those people was a group of people who said, your life matters to me because it matters to God. And we know it matters to God because He became a man and died on a cross for our sins. He went the ultimate length to bring us salvation because you matter. Because you matter to Him, you matter to me. And that, and that has to be our message. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the death you died for us that proves we matter to you, that all people matter to you. Help us, Lord, to love all life as you do. Help us to be consistent. Lord, show us how to move beyond just the binary politics of this and to truly be people who show the world that every life matters. Lord, we lift these things before you. We pray once again for our leaders, state, national, local leaders, as they, they seek to make good decisions regarding this coronavirus. We pray for those who are seeking a cure and those who are seeking a vaccine, that you would bless their efforts. Lord, get us through this time. Bless every person, every person who's struggling right now, financially, economically, physically, emotionally. Help the church to be the church now, like now, like never before. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Y'all have a great night. It's been a pleasure as always. Love you. Look forward to seeing you again soon.